Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Warm welcome to everybody. For those of you who haven't been here at Merricks, um, my name is Kerstin Lose Friedrich, and I'm the director of communications at Merricks. And I'm very happy that Dena, the German energy agency, approached us and asked if we would be willing to host such an event. Our topic today is China's role as a major actor in climate policy, and of course, it fits very well in the actual landscape. It's very timely, as since almost two weeks, delegations from all over the world. A meeting in Madrid, not in Chile, in Madrid, and make some efforts to save the climate. We are very happy to host such an event, as we are pretty sure the effectiveness of whatever is agreed and done in Madrid and somewhere else will ultimately stand or fall with the actions of China. Tomorrow, the China Renewable Energy Outlook will be launched in Madrid by the China National Renewable Energy Center. At Merricks, you are always ahead of times, and therefore you get a preview today. Two energy experts who joined the drafting process are with us today. This is Caroline Schenuit from Dana here from Berlin, and Lars Breinbeck from originally Denmark, but often in China. And thanks for coming to us today, and uh, we are very happy to have you here. Caroline Schenuit is team leader at DENA for system and market integration of renewable energies, and she will present the main findings of the China Renewable Energy Outlook in 2019. She has more than 13 years of experience in renewable energies and energy system development, and she gained practical experience in China. Lately, she worked more on overarching political perspectives, and so she is the ideal candidate to present us the results and main findings and recommendations of this outlook. So, Caroline, welcome here, and the floor is yours for the next 15 minutes. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm glad to see all of you here, and um, I will be doing my best to try and present the summary of the China Renewable Energy Outlook. I'm being cautious because it is a big publication, uh, a very data-heavy one, because it's a big scientific e uh, effort uh, that's been done already in the past year, since uh, the fourth CREO that, uh, that is being launched this year. Uh, and I will hope, or I hope that it will become visible that there are um, significant efforts uh, being done in China and in the international field to uh, to get specific on how to achieve uh, climate protection, what to do, how to get there, and uh, to actually get a feeling for the dimension of the challenge. So I will start with a few words on the setup because it may be a little strange that I'm here presenting the results of the China National Renewable Energy Center. Uh, that is because DENA is part of an international project setup, a big cooperation with uh, CENREC, as I will abbreviate it. Uh, and there are German partners involved, there are Danish partners involved, as we have heard. There are also uh, other international partners, uh, for example, from the US, uh, some associated uh, institutions like IEA and IRENA, who are important players in the energy field. Um, and of course, there are several Chinese institutions involved. This is uh, a uh, not complete overview, but just to give you an uh, impression on, on the scope of this project and why I'm being cautious to summarize the results, because there's really a lot of expertise going into that. 
As I said, it's the fourth uh, CREO of a series of publications, and um, the, the main purpose or the main perspective of CREO is China's energy system towards 2050. Uh, that said, this year's CREO has a certain focus on the next uh, five-year plan, the 14th five-year plan, um, but the focus uh, of the scenarios, the focus of the of the modeling is on uh, on 2050. Uh, that is because uh, the the whole initiative was started in 2016, right after the Paris Agreement was signed, and uh, the, the the framework conditions of the Paris Agreement um, are the cornerstones of the work that is being done here. The CREO is uh, uh, published every year at the end of the year, usually towards COP. Um, and it is uh, containing a lot of different efforts. There are other reports also being published uh, in the context of the of the cooperation work. Um, and the CREO itself is a is a, um, a publication of Senrec and ERI, which is like the mother institute, the Energy Research Institute in China. Just a brief word on the German uh, participation in this uh, in this um, effort in the CRIO. We have uh, been contributing to the CRIO itself, but also uh, been doing focus reports on specific several key topics that support the CRIO research. Uh, with well, we are being sent by the uh, German Ministry for um, um, Economy and Energy to enable the experience transfer from the German side to, to China, from the German situation also to China and to see where are similarities, where are uh, common fields, common challenges when it comes to the energy transition and uh, what can be learned from one another and what are the, the yeah, lessons learned and best practices that can also be applied in China. We've been doing uh, that cooperation in several formats, also in direct uh, interaction with Chinese stakeholders, workshops on site in China. Uh, and um, according to my personal opinion, we have gotten more and more foothold on the ground with stakeholders in China from, from, from industry and all and, and different other sectors uh, to, that make our work more <clears throat> uh, more based on uh, on the on the real world uh, developments and insights. But now getting to CREO itself, starting with the Chinese vision for the energy transition. There are several elements, as you can see here, that uh, con con contain the vision. Um, overall, it's this, um, the, you may all know, the beautiful China uh, um, uh, catchword. Uh, based on ecological civilization, the energy revolution is, of course, part of the, of the vision for the transition. Uh, and also the, the clean, low-carbon, safe and efficient energy system. There are some very important uh, points in these adjectives that will, I will come to later, especially uh, regarding efficient. And of course, the sustainable growth within the ecological boundaries. I think this is also a very important framework, acknowledging the, um, uh, the points being made in the Paris Agreement and also acknowledging the, the fact that even in a huge country like China, of course, there are boundaries. The core design of CREO is um, the scenario work, which I will be putting a few words on, not too many, not to getting too technical. Um, the scenario work, uh, and then that is broken down into specific roadmaps, how the development could look like in China, and then uh, recommendations and a policy action plan are derived from that. The method methodology is to really analyze the whole energy system and get specific, make the visions concrete, put measures behind what needs to be done in order to, to achieve that vision. 
the two main scenarios are the, and you will find that in every CREO, the stated policy scenario and the below two degree scenario. And that is uh, already showing the, the whole purpose. It's uh, like uh, trying to point out the gap between what is stated policies and what actually needs to be done. This, uh, I think, is a very good uh, exercise, one that we might also be wanting to do in Germany and other countries as well. Um, but this is um, the important thing is that there are stated policies, of course, and the five-year plan is an important uh, moment to revise the stated policies. So that's why it's a crucial year this year. Um, getting to the modeling suit itself, don't worry, I don't, I I'm not going to read all, all of the elements to you. This is just to show that it's a very complete modeling suite that is being used for the CREO. So this uh, big ambitious uh, uh, goal to model the whole energy system is, uh, is really based uh, on a lot of data and a lot of expertise. Uh, I'm very glad to have Lars as the key expert here today uh, and anything that I might not be able to answer in terms of technical questions that you may have afterwards, I'm sure he will be able to cover. So what are the key results for the uh, below two degree scenario? I will start with that and coming to the what does that mean for the 14th five-year plan afterwards to give you an impression because the below two degree scenario is always uh, a little... It's impressive, also a little frightening, because it shows very um, drastic developments, but that could be feasible. So this, uh, uh, it's important to point out that it's not only making the numbers work and forcing the model to somehow uh, provide the right results, but it's also based on the question of how industry supply chains can develop, how costs can come down, etc. So it's not... It's not a dream world. It's it's a real, real effort. Some key uh, key assumptions for the two degree scenario for 2050 or two key results are uh, when it comes to GDP, uh, as can be expected for China, further growth, significant growth. It's uh, more than quadrupling of the current level. The primary energy consumption will go down modestly. That said, uh, if you compare the numbers, uh, the growth of the GDP on the one hand and the energy consumption on the other hand, it becomes obvious that there needs to be a decoupling of uh, energy consumption and uh, economic growth. And most importantly, in the energy consumption, the um, percentage of renewable energy has to go up significantly. Uh, the uh, the CREO foresees a shrinking of the percentage of fossil fuels from 90% today to 35% uh, in 2050. And that includes all energy sectors, includes mobility, includes buildings, and includes industry. For China, the coal is always a very important factor to consider because it's a very big uh, source of energy. And also coal consumption will decrease significantly by 85%, um, which... Well, it also has to when you look at the climate impacts of coal. Um, and the, um, parallel to that, the CO2 emissions will decrease as well um, by 73% until 2050. Um, and this, well, compared maybe to some other studies that you know for Germany, is a little less ambitious level that, that, that we, than we are discussing here, also on the European level. Um, but this is also taking into account, well, the starting situation of China when it comes to the economy and also comes to the status of the country itself. The change in the, in, in the energy structure uh, 
in, uh, parallel to that is of course uh, also uh, quite significant. You see a lot of black here on the 2020 side when it comes to fossil fuels and especially coal. <clears throat> And you see uh, a much more colorful mix uh, on the other side for 2050. Wind and solar will become the backbone of the energy system. Fossil fuels will decrease, but it also has to be said that there is an increase uh, uh, of the use of nuclear power, and there's also a moderate increase in the use of natural gas. I think today maybe some uh, well recent political developments when it comes to commitments from China uh, with a perspective on gas, may indicate otherwise. Um, but this is really from a, let's, what, what is the most economic way, what is the most efficient way, uh, a recommendation um, that the CREO would point out. The overall cost in the power sector will go down as well in 2050 because uh, the structure changes from... Um, a mix of fixed and fuel cost to a very fixed cost heavy system. But the good, uh, the good news is that those fixed costs that are mostly um, uh, occurring for wind and solar are decreasing as well because of the expected uh, learning curves and cost decrease curves for wind and solar. So the overall power system cost is expected to be 20% lower in 2050 compared to 2018. And uh, just a side note, those are also um, general um, uh, benefits that could be expected uh, in other uh, energy systems as well, including Germany. So looking more on the nearer future right now, 2000 to uh, 2035, uh, there is some historic development in there to point out how the development was and how it is expected to be. There are some key development trends that the consumption will stabilize despite further economic growth, that the, okay, <laughs> that the emissions will peak around 2020, which is an important difference to the, uh, to the committed uh, statements from the Chinese government that see a peak in 2030, and that the consumption and the growth will decouple. Uh, given the fact that I'm a little ahead in time, I will rationalize on my next slides. <laughs> Thank you for the hint. Um, so the, de the decarbonization pathway, of course, has a much longer um, uh, time frame than only the 14th five-year plan. So there is like a roadmap towards uh, decarbonization. And this is uh, especially focusing on the development of the renewable energy sector, because we will have to see significant um, uh, um, uh, capacity additions for both wind and solar in China um, in the upcoming years. For the 14th five-year plan, the levels are as proven. So there have been around about 40 to 50 gigawatt of solar uh, already being installed in one year in China. So it's been proven that that's feasible. For wind, 50 gigawatt is already, or 53 gigawatt is already a little uh, on the ambitious side, but also there that is feasible. But if you really want to get onto, onto that path of decommunization uh, in the years to follow, those numbers have to go up and accordingly the industries have to scale. So I will be skipping over this to get to this very important message because uh, how do renewables become the cheapest source of power? Also, this is not like an invention of the CREO team, but there are several reports, for example, being published by the International Energy re in recent months about the development of offshore wind. They did a big report also on the development on PV, of PV, and uh, it, is, it is expected, it can be concluded that if 
there is a commitment to the Paris Agreement, not only by China, but also by other countries, the global uh, cost level will decrease significantly further for solar and wind. And um, you can see the those those numbers here are taken out of the report. You can see the development there uh, that will be further decreasing uh, for renewables. And one very important factor for China is um, over there you see this mysterious 4% four per, four whack that is weighted average, average cost of capital. It's a very important factor, the, the question of how much, how much interest rate is on the high level of fixed cost for renewables. And for China, the main task is to do de-risking because the current WAC is higher than that. Uh, and so the cost decrease maybe cannot be seen as, as clearly um, as it is uh, being done in the modeling. So the de-risking um, is an important task and, uh, of course, stable political conditions for the development of renewable energies are an important precondition for that. I will also keep this slide, which is very technical, but also interesting for those who are more into the energy system itself, how to deal with peaks of generation of renewables. Also, this uh, uh, we think is uh, possible, and the modeling shows uh, that it can be done to, to, to a sufficient extent to make use of uh, the valuable renewables. And coming to the key recommendations for the 14th five-year plan, there are targets that... Um, should be feasible for 2025. It's important to have a scenario that is realistic, that, that can be done, that sounds uh, feasible on the political side. For example, like um, increasing the percentage of non-fossil energy, reducing the energy intensity. There is a lot also being done on the industry side in China to, um, to achieve that, but there's still an, a lot that can be done as well. Um, Reducing the uh, CO2 intensity, 27% of course is a significant uh, reduction, but nevertheless something that um, uh, that can and should be considered, especially if the uh, if the overall um, global economic conditions change. And then of course we have the renewables numbers that I have referred to already before. Last but not least, as conclusions, not only for the 14th five-year plan, five-year plan, but in general. Um, it is, from the, from the point of view of the CREO team, um, uh, visible that there are visions in and for China and there are the means and the possibilities are also there. Uh, it's a critical point in time, I think, right now um, uh, regarding the decisions on which way to go. And you all know probably much better than I do about the, um, the international policy implications about uh, the trade discussions, um, economic growth in general, not only for China. So, of course, there are a lot of question marks around um, what are the framework conditions. But there are no question marks around uh, the point that there is just one very good way forward that is sustainable, that will provide a, a good a good uh, development point also for new industries uh, that will provide for further economic growth. And um, the most important cornerstone for that will be the 14th five-year plan. So that's why we think that is an important point of discussion. And um, I will be also interested and very curious to hear you perspectives from the different angles that you are working on and with, uh, with China regarding uh, the discussions on the 14th five-year plan. Thank you.
Thank you, Caroline. Lars Brienbeck is partner at the private consultancy agency. It's called Energy Analysis. And he has more than 14 years of professional experience in modeling energy systems and analyzing energy management issues. He has been working on projects in China for more than a decade now. And uh, since 2015, he is chief modeling expert at the China National Renewable Energy Center, who is responsible for this outlook. I don't know exactly what it means to be a chief modeling expert, but maybe that's something you can... Nobody has told me either. Okay. <laughs> and then on the right is my colleague, Nies Greenberg. He's also Danish, so we have a Danish-German panel, and I'm almost Danish. I was born in Kiel. Um, Nies um, is an expert here at Merricks. He deals a lot with state-owned enterprise reform, especially in the energy sector, and he recently published a very interesting China Monitor on state party relations, totally different topic, but in a way it has something to do with today, and uh, so we will come back to these aspects. Before he joined Merricks, he was a postdoctoral fellow at the Copenhagen Business School. What will happen to your recommendations? You both were involved in the process of drafting this China Renewable Energy Outlook. Lars, what do you think will happen to it from tomorrow onwards? That's a, a very hard question to answer, <laughs> to be totally honest. The, the, the Renewable Energy Outlook is, uh, is produced as a research report, and it is uh, being presented uh, at Madrid uh, in the China Pavilion uh, tomorrow with the introduction from the chief negotiator. Hopefully, he will be able to be there. So uh, you could say as a starting point, it will be, uh, it will be presented to uh, some of the right people uh, who have to know about uh, these, uh, these visions. In addition, I would say this is brand new. Um, the previous CREOs have been uh, a starting point uh, for uh, policy discussions uh, in other uh, situations. If you read the, um, uh, the memorandum that the uh, Chinese Ministry of uh, Ecology and Environment put out uh, pre-COP, you can notice that there's uh, some suggestions about the NEA conducting research on um, 2035 and 2050, and that is part of a discussion where CREO has been presented as, a, as feeding into that, together with other uh, similar types of works and research reports. Caroline, we just discussed the question, what will happen to the report, and what would you expect? Is Xi Jinping somebody who will read the report? Is this your wish? <laughs> oh, it's certainly my wish. <laughs> I'm not sure it if it will happen. Um, I hope he will at least get a summary from some of his staff. <laughs> um, but I'm uh, I'm optimistic that there will be some kind of impact looking at the um, at the core messages because I'm noticing, as I said, we are in this project uh, on behalf of our ministry, and I do perceive a lot of discussion. Uh, on various of the topics that uh, that were part of the presentation, and they are being taken very seriously and and of course it's, it's still topics of discussion but um, just recently in the past weeks, we have had several visitors from from Chinese institutions obviously preparing themselves for the intensive discussions of the fourteenth five year plan. So uh, that's why I'm optimistic that in the overall political system there will be an impact of our work. Nis, you follow the whole process of the drafting of the next uh, 14th five-year plan in China. What would you say, how important is this uh, presentation tomorrow for the whole process and um, is there a possibility to get this input into the plan? 
Well, I think um, the uh, the drafting uh, period for the next five-year plan is getting into a heated phase now. So the, all the important uh, input has to be uh, made in the next weeks or months in order to be a part of the five the next five-year plan, uh, which goes from 21 to 25. So I think it's really important, and it's a great platform to launch this work now because it, it's it's giving very concrete and usable technical advice, but it's also international stage. So there's a political push, uh, and it is very good, uh, you know, technical advice for for it kind of covers all the the different uh, layers of the government, right? The people who have to implement this, but also gives a political leeway to do this. So it's a very it's a very good uh, period of time, I would say. Lars, you're focusing on the five-year plans and uh, especially on those aspects of energy development. What would you say will be the, probably the biggest differences between the 13th and the 14th five-year plan? What do you guess? That's a very, very difficult uh, question to answer. If, if we start with, for, with um, you could say, the structure, my anticipation would be that the structure of the 14th five-year plan will not change significantly from, from the 13th five-year plan. Um, but, but where the country is, where the energy system is in relation to, to the, uh, the entire institutional and market setup, etc., is significantly different. If you look at the historical development of renewable energy in China, uh, renewable energy used to be an add-on to the fossil energy system. And one of the... the The core things that we point out, uh, especially from the long term, is that renewable energy is going to be the backbone of the renewable of the energy system as, a, as such. So it's no longer an add-on. It's no longer something that you just add on top, which means that in terms of renewable energy policy development has to be looked at in an integrated way. And what this means is it's going to be disrupting the established industries. And that's one of the things that you can see is already happening today that the coal producers or the, the coal power producers are complaining, they're suffering because their generation hours are going down, they're not achieving as much revenue as they used to, and their overall business model is also being transformed from, uh, from power sector reform. And a lot of that, you could say, that the blame goes to renewable energy in part, um, uh, but, but a lot of that also deals with the overall demand to get efficiencies into the energy sector, which is needed to continue a, a, a sustainable growth uh, for China in the future. Before we talk about obstacles in this whole process in the, for the foreseeable future, Karen, what would you say, where did the Chinese government really succeed in their efforts to tackle the climate issue and where didn't they succeed? Well, um, as, as you pointed out in, in the beginning, uh, I've started my career in the renewable energy industry in, China, in Germany. Um, and I quickly uh, went to China to, because uh, there was such a um, yeah, targeted and also uh, aggressive ramping of, um, of supply chains there. And that for me was a very uh, decisive moment because uh, of the very early strategic commitment to these uh, supply chains, to these industries. So from my perspective, it was logical. And well, from discussions with Lars and his colleagues, I, I know that it was not that logical, but that there was also a strong domestic market for renewables. And um, interestingly enough, uh, despite this strategic commitment, it's, it, it seems not yet to be uh, in, 
in everybody's mind that uh, the asset that China has by by having these kind of uh, uh, of industries in a very well established way, and um, I, I wanted to add to to what you said before the difference between thirteenth and fourteenth five year plan. I think also have to be considered on an international scale. So the, a lot has changed in the past five years. Paris Agreement was a starting point for the China renewable energy outlooks, but not also only for that. We do have a lot of discussions in Germany as well about all of these topics. Um, and I think that has to be taken into account as well. And uh, when I speak to Chinese officials uh, in, in our capacity as the German Energy Agency, um, I'm always surprised uh, as to how much reference is being made to what is happening and what is being discussed and decided in Germany. So what we do here with our coal uh, phase out, with our renewable energy sector, is very well observed in China. And I don't want to go that far as to say uh, it's like a, a, a sample or, or, an, or an, uh, something to, to, to be oriented. But I do think that it is relevant and it's also relevant when it comes to the ambition level for the next five-year plan. Lars, how does it come that a Danish and a German expert are involved in this whole process? And what are your practical experience in China? Uh, Denmark has had uh, an, uh, a number of bilateral corporations over the years, a wind energy development program, a renewable energy development program, which helped to establish uh, Senrec was supported by, uh, or was established uh, on the basis of support from the Danish government. And... Uh, When I started working with China uh, some 10 years ago, one of the things that struck me quite quickly was that there were a lot of similarities in terms of the, the energy system and the challenges uh, that we're looking at. At that time, wind energy was starting to scale up. Um, there was a lot of curtailment issues, especially in the three norths, uh, related to a combination of uh, district heating or combined heat and power and wind power being deployed in the same regions. And we found that, well, there are a lot of solutions that we have already adapted in, in Denmark for this. Um, uh, but there's also, there's also a need to actually uh, adapt how you're addressing the overall energy system. We had the experiences that a lot of, the, a lot of the, uh, the ideas that we were suggesting were off the table, so to speak. China had a power market or an attempt at a power market reform in the early 2000s, which had been sort of stopped in its tracks. And most of the solutions that we were coming from were coming with maybe had a starting point and we needed to, to restart that power market reform. When, when we started, uh, when I started uh, embedded at Senric, one of the interesting things that happened was that the, um, the, the power market reform was kickstarted. And therefore, there has been, since then at least, uh, there has been very, very strong interest in hearing about international experiences on such issues as renewable energy integration, power market reform, and, 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 and other things regulating clean energy technologies, et cetera, et cetera. So, so China has looked to examples, Denmark, Germany, uh, to, to find solutions to the challenges as they were occurring. And we saw that the challenges faced from high penetration renewables, for example, were met even faster in China than in, in, in some of our markets. So it's a really interesting uh, place to, to go and a really pro interesting process to be a part of. Karin, how would you see it? How well were you received at the Institute? And, well, how, how much did they really ask for your perspective on things and your expertise? 
I would say that the reception was 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 very very well, and uh, we came into the whole um, cooperation a little later. As Lars pointed out, Denmark uh, was had some programs that were the starting point of everything. Um, but I think it was very well. As I as I mentioned in my previous comment, there was a, a huge interest in the perspectives and the conclusions from the German side. Um, Without intending that, I always notice that our reports also tend to be a little more complicated because when we speak about Germany, we always have to explain some circumstances of a federal system, etc. But that makes it comparable yeah? because uh, there are strong provinces in China. There are things to be considered there. And although everything has a very different dimension, some of the problems are not that totally different. Well, that said, also uh, the German government has had uh, long-term relations in the energy field with China. There's an energy, a bilateral energy partnership as well, um, uh, implemented for 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 several years, also prior to this cooperation. So I think this is uh, energy is one of the of the fields of the intergovernmental uh, relations that is maybe the the, the best established one. Um, and it's only consequent to get into further detail like we like we do here and like we uh, will be doing in the upcoming years. Lars, what would you say? Um, which role can Germany and Denmark play? And is there a strategy beyond the simple technical expertise? I will answer for Denmark, uh, if that's okay. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> so uh, the way I see it is that... Uh, in, De in Denmark, we have our own energy transition ongoing. We've set ambitious targets in the past, and, and, and we have a new climate law, etc., etc. Uh, but our ability as a small country to uh, influence global climate change directly is very, very limited. So the way I see it is that Denmark has a strategy to use our personal experience or our, our national experience, our capabilities, our achievements of achieving high penetration variable renewables in the energy system uh, as a point of leverage to sort of export those experiences to whoever will listen. We have bilateral corporations with uh, China, Indonesia, Vietnam, Mexico, South Africa, a lot of, lot of different uh, collaborations where you could see the experiences that, that we have achieved over uh, as, as early movers in terms of developing renewable energy. Uh, are, 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 are tried to be to transmit it uh, to whoever will listen, and particularly there's a strategy of addressing uh, those countries which have the biggest challenges with relation to uh, to bringing down carbon emissions. The coal-intensive countries, like the ones I, I mentioned, and China especially. Karin, how would you see it? Does Germany have a real strategy for the future of cooperation with China in this particular field? So I have to be a little cautious here because uh, we are only being sent on the purpose of energy by the uh, by the BMWi, um, and I do see a strategy there. Um, when it comes to an overall China strategy, I think that answer should be uh, the question should be answered by other people. But I certainly do see a strategy there, and as I said, it's it's been long long established. And um, personally, I hope that it will also get more intensive. In the future, because I also think that uh, there are some things, meanwhile, that Germany can learn from China. So this is not a one-way street, and uh, there are also some 
experiences that uh, that could be uh, beneficial for us, for example, when it comes to uh, the integration of electric vehicles on the grid side, etc., and um, the, the the questions of of new technologies. I mean, we all know that regarding the use of digital technologies, etc., there are some controversies around how China does that and how we do it here. But nevertheless, there is technology experience, and just as uh, maybe unfortunately, to from our perspective, um, experiences from Germany when it comes to um, to, to power markets and to a very um, uh, liberal handling of uh, of energy flows, etc., which is uh, observed with a little reservation still in China. So this is also not adopted one on one. But I think that's also not the point. The point is to discuss about these topics and to figure out what is the right way for for every partner of that cooperation to move ahead in order to achieve the targets. And the targets are equally ambitious for everyone. Nice, China has currently a lot of problems. It's in the middle of trade war with the US. Um, economic situation is slowing down. What would you say? Is climate policy still a priority under Xi Jinping? Uh, well, I think it is. Um, I mean, it's true China has uh, pushed from different angles. Uh, some of them, uh, it's their own fault. Some of them are structural, and some of them are international things that is out of China's hand. But I think, um, you know, the, the, the concept of ecological civilization, for example, is one of the five strategic pillars that is, uh, has been elevated to uh, kind of top-level uh, agenda by Xi Jinping himself. So they take it very seriously. But in general, the, um, let's call it the development project of China is a comprehensive uh, undertaking and uh, it has comprehensive results. Uh, so that I mean, it, it can, they kind of still bet on every horse, uh, and that is for, of course because China is very uh, heter heterogeneous. So the, the eastern provinces and the western provinces are very different. So you have real development issues still going on, and uh, you have uh, market mechanisms that are not full in play. There's a lot of different things that are, are problematic. Um, the the thing is though that climate, if we believe the signs, and I tend to do. Uh, cl the climate issue is not something that we can ignore uh, for much longer. And in order for the entire world to tackle climate change, um, we need China because China has, I think, 30% of global emissions is, 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 is China. So we need China to be on board with this. And that is why I think we really have to also lend um, a helping hand or, or welcome China to the table. I mean, you can push them, but we have to also to signal that... Um, negotiations, cooperation, and uh, technical, you know, the, these kinds of, of, of cooperations are really important and, uh, and dear to us also uh, in order to keep climate uh, politics from just becoming a bargaining chip. Really crucial to the whole development is the future role of coal in China's energy mix. And when I went through the media clippings on COP25 in Madrid, I really wondered there wasn't written much on China, but if, then it was always about the role of coal and that China is still building up its capacities. Um, that was also shown in your presentation, Caroline. But the question also is they are still exporting coal industries to Belt and Road countries, for example. So how, what is your assessment? How will this go on? Well, this is one of the comprehensive outcomes of uh, development I, I was talking about. Um, I mean, uh, China is uh, at the moment has, I think, uh, I don't know if I get the number wrong, uh, 240 gigawatts, I think, uh, of coal power plants uh, in the pipeline. That is uh, a lot of power um, plants. It's, I think it's roughly the, the American uh, coal fleet. So there's a lot of uh, coal power plants still coming. 
it also exports power and energy projects on the Belt and Road, for example, uh, in Africa. Uh, so there's a lot of there's a big carbon footprint uh, of Chinese export and in, in, in the infrastructure projects around the world. Um, Lars also just told me that a lot of the uh, um, decommissioned coal uh, power plants from China that are upgraded are exported to Indonesia. So there's uh, I mean there's a lot of things going on uh, under the radar, um, and and China, the Chinese strategy is a national strategy, uh, and I think there has to be a much bigger discussion of um, uh, outsourced, the outsourced international carbon footprints, not only of China, also I think us, uh, because I mean, let's face it, our uh, polluting industries uh, were also exported, right? We also outsource our dirty industries, and that should be a part of the discussion much more than than it is right now. Last gets, let's get started with the really complex and complicated issues: the power market reform. Um, how realistic is it to switch from a highly regulated, central controlled market principle to a more market oriented one? I, I would, uh, I would perhaps frame it as uh, how is it going to happen? Because it is, it is. This is a process which is ongoing. Uh, one of the other activities in China that I'm now involved in is uh, together with the, the Nordic Power Exchange, Nordpool, and uh, the Danish uh, TSO, Energinet, uh, to uh, come up with the suggestion for a national unified power market for China. Um, this is something which has very high priority. The power market reform was started with the issue of document number nine in uh, March of uh, 2015. And, and there are very clear drivers for why that has to be a success. And even starting it up, you could say, after the first reform was uh, stopped in its tracks, it, it took uh, significant political courage. What we see now is uh, eight provinces have, been, uh, have announced uh, spot market pilots. Uh, so they are making new markets at provincial level of a type which is similar to those that we know from Europe or from the US. Some of them six out of eight of them more like the US and two of them perhaps more like in Europe. Um, but these are uncoordinated uh, pilots. Um, so that's the spot market uh, part. You have established uh, two uh, power exchanges, a Beijing power exchange, Guangdong power exchange, to handle interprovincial transmission trading on, on the mid and long term. You have uh, 22 provincial uh, power exchanges on uh, mid and long term trading. Uh, already established. Uh, you have a number of um, ancillary service uh, market functions already established. And I think it's something like, uh, the percentage is not going to be accurate, 30 or 40% of the power is actually traded in some way already. This is growing, I mean, the amount of electricity which is actually being traded on something that looks like a market basis is growing very, very fast. The, there are very significant challenges with this, however, because these different pilots, they are not coordinated in their design. The, uh, the design has actually been delegated to the provinces in the initial stage because it was difficult to define a model which would be all-encompassing without having significant experience in terms of how do you actually operate power markets. And so therefore, you, know, you, you let the provinces try and see what comes out. 
and one of the realizations that has been uh, come to the to the National Energy Administration, where four departments and the NDRC, the National Development Reform Commission, where another four departments are working on power market reform, is that they actually have to move quite quickly to make sure that this becomes coordinated. The big, the big benefit from power market reform, the, 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 where, we, where we really see that there can be a significant ben benefit for China is by coordinating the resource allocation across the country. You have in the, in the southwest, you have the hydropower, you have in the north, you have the wind, and the, in the northwest, you have the solar, and you have the load in the east. So interprovincial coordination of these resources is where the huge efficiency benefit, which is what justifies basically throwing out the rule book and putting in a new rule book. Uh, so, so this is tremendously important, and if these pilots sort of go down the wrong path, and, and, and then we will risk having China to go through a similar time period of power market reform as we have done, as opposed to sort of leapfrogging on the basis of, of the other experiences. And that is quite dangerous because when we started our energy transitions in Europe, one of the things that made it actually possible to ramp up renewables penetration was having efficient mechanisms to coordinate down to an hourly level which unit should generate and when. Coal plants ramp down when wind and solar goes up. It's very important to have these mechanisms. And the incumbent situation for China as they were scaling up with the early renewables was that this kind of situation, uh, these kinds of mechanisms did not exist. And so they don't have the time to, if, if we're supposed to achieve the levels of penetrations and not rush face first into a wall uh, saying that, well, not only this power market reform a failure, the renewable, the energy transition is a failure because it will be too costly. The wind, the solar will be curtailed. The coal plants will go bankrupt because they're forced to downregulate, and they still have skewed incentives to build new coal power plants, as Nis mentioned. It's really, really important that this power market reform is successful, and there are a lot of steps on the way. Caroline, you mentioned that you got a lot of delegations coming from China visiting the German Energy Agency. What is your maybe simple advice on how to succeed with such power for reform? Well, I'm a big fan of uh, empiric uh, approaches, and I think, just as Lars has mentioned, it's a good good sign that um, they start doing it. I had the honor to be in uh, Guangzhou the day they took their uh, spot market live, uh, so there was a lot of excitement in the air uh, at China Southern Grid, and also uh, some worries that everything will go fine, but they had practiced before, and everything went fine. Um, but I think that is actually the, the important starting point, and um, to and I do have the impression that the the people who are responsible for that in China, there are a lot of also very smart and well educated people who have also gained experiences abroad. So I'm I'm optimistic. I agree with with uh, Lars's uh, assessment that uh, it, it has to be successful, but I also think uh, it can be. And actually, changing the perspective again and looking from the from the European side, where we have a kind of comparable situation. We do have different market designs in Europe. We have coupled markets uh, and we have a different situation on the grid side. Um, that is something that, um, that also helps to understand the challenge in China. Uh, we, we tend to be, and that includes myself, uh, to be very demanding because they are able and they have proven to be able uh, to achieve so much in short time. 
Um, but if you just look at the challenge, I mean, from the grid side, uh, look at the uh, growth curves in the energy demand and the energy that had to be transported from all parts of the country to where it was needed, um, there, there is a reason why the sensitivity to, to stability, for example, is much higher there. Because when back in the day I was visiting factories of renewable uh, PV module production, for example, there were still planned outages. Like the day before, the grid operator would call the factory manager and advise him that tomorrow uh, around noon, three hours, no electricity. Mm. That was a standard situation. It was not like once in a year. And uh, that is something maybe that factory managers in Germany haven't had since, I don't know, World War II. So, <laughs> so this is really, um, I mean, of course, this is a growing pain and maybe you can consider it a luxury problem, but it, it, it provides a very different sensitivity to these kind of aspects. And uh, that's why I think the approach that's being taken is uh, getting into the right direction and we all should uh, keep fingers crossed that China will provide the acceleration that it has proven in other fields as well here. Yes, I would like to come back to the international level and um, China's role as a major actor in climate policy. Whenever it comes to curbs for CO2 emissions, um, they talk about the right of development. And the question is, how long do you think they will continue to bring up this argument, which is understandable? But on the other hand, it doesn't help the situation and it's not easy to reach the Paris Agreement targets um, when this is still upheld. Yeah, well, the, the right to development is, um, has been a foundation of uh, the Chinese position. Um, it, it's, it's weakened already, um, so there are these national, uh, nationally defined uh, commitments. Um, but, I mean, China has to be pushed uh, to uh, sacrifice that because it gives them a lot of leeway. It gives them room uh, to, you know, do a little bit of, uh, of, of development at the, at the side, you know, and, and, and keep the, the dirty industries and... Uh, it's I don't know I don't see it I don't see it uh, going out this five year plan I don't see it go out the next five year plan maybe the sixteenth um, I hope though that the uh, um, ambitions will outstrip the need for uh, you know continuing on demanding these rights uh, so that and that is this is why coming back to the question before this is why it's so important uh, that this is launched at the at the the talks at the COP twenty five now so that the green agenda kind of gets a lift uh, from the international uh, side also, so that the, because it, in China it really comes down to political interests uh, and the interest, uh, the main interest of stability, political stability, right? Uh, so whenever you have, an, um, I don't know, social instability, growth falling too fast, you, they, have, they reserve the right to use non-climate neutral or however you will call it, solutions to fix these issues. Uh, development issues, social stability, uh, economic growth at local levels especially. So this is the tool that they, they, they kind of have. Uh, we are still developing country. Uh, they, they stick to that legal term. Um, well, I, I don't see it go away for the next five or ten years. Lars, there are a lot of discussions about the question if there's a systemic rivalry between China and the U.S. and China and Europe. Um, but if you look at climate policy, do you still see a chance that there is a real cooperation or is it also a question of um, systemic differences? I, I actually, I, I believe that uh, China's uh, commitment to wanting to solve the climate crisis is, is, is true. Um, 
I think there are a lot of challenges in terms of what does that then mean? What do we then have to do differently? And of course, there's the whole, like, who should, who should make the first move? One of the things that I, I really fear in, uh, in, in this uh, 14th five-year plan period is uh, some of the signals that we're getting. Um, we've been pushing uh, China on, 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 on being serious about climate change for, for a while, and we have the pollution um, situation, which you could say was a, another issue which you could push, which was more direct and more directly showed the benefits of actually reducing pollution was a benefit to Chinese citizens and Chinese society. And if we push on that angle and support on that angle, we would also address the climate change uh, or, or get momentum towards climate change uh, uh, mitigation. However, now we're facing some of these problems where uh, basically the pollution situation is, or some of these problems, some of the good, it's a good that the pollution situation is maybe getting better in, in, in quite a few cities and industries, but it means that also you get some policy reflex, which is, you know, at the same time we said, okay, we wanted to do more natural gas, but do we want to import this from, as LNG from the US in the context of the trade war? Energy security goes back on the agenda. What is China's energy security? It, we can argue that it is renewable energy, which is energy secure, but they could also be argued that it is coal. So, so therefore we see, and we saw this recently when the National Energy Commission uh, met, that there's indications that, that coal might, you could say, resurge. And the excuse that, well, all of the major economies are not on board, so why should the developing country like China uh, move forward? So I, I have a serious concern about this. I think it's, it's really important. However, I also think that this provides an opportunity for, for, for other Western nations to engage positively uh, with China. And I also see that there is an increased interest in strong collaboration on energy, on climate issues with uh, European agencies. I see that there's an increased uh, focus on learning from European models as opposed to other uh, models, uh, which is an opportunity I don't think that uh, Europe should uh, um, let us pass by. One of the areas I see this is in terms of, um, of power market reform, where I see there's a definite shift, but also uh, strong relations uh, on uh, renewable energy development and uh, smart cities. And, and, and there, there are a lot of areas where I think that there can be uh, strong collaboration. Now, how that affects the climate negotiations, that's uh, above my pay grade. Karen, are you an optimist or would you say would you be, say you are afraid that China's climate policy will become a kind of bargaining chip in the whole confrontation between China and the West or China and the US? So I stick with my role and I'm an optimist <laughs> um, because I think there's also maybe an alternative perspective on the question of how climate policies could be used by China in the international field and that systemic rivalry thing. So maybe given the fact that right now there's a bit of a, uh, a blank spot with the uh, U.S. getting so uh, defensive on, uh, on climate policies and uh, getting out of the Paris Agreement and all that, um, that could also be an opportunity for profiling for, for China. And I hope that they see this as an opportunity uh, because it has so much potential and so much advantages for China. Yeah, so there's a, a spot to be taken. And um, I, I also, 
well would would be optimistic given the the close observation that I experience on what we are doing in in, in Germany when I talk to Chinese stakeholders that uh, there can be a dynamic in there and maybe a little bit of rivalry is not that bad yeah so I think there could be worse things uh, uh, than uh, a competition around uh, who gets uh, renewable industries ramped the quickest who gets the biggest installation rates and and, and things like that so maybe this there could be a good thing in that too as long uh, as it sticks to let's say a positive competition like that He's talking about scenarios. Do you expect Greta Thunberg to travel to China in the foreseeable future? And if so, how would she be received? <laughs> well, um, I don't know. Um, I mean, she stands for something that the government doesn't really like. Uh, so a non-official uh, sanctioned movement by young people that are not finished uh, in school and, and non -edu not educated and all that, right? So I... I, I It would be it would be a very very difficult uh, position for uh, official China uh, because she's a such a big international profile, so they cannot really uh, ignore her totally. But it's I think also it's it's a very dangerous. Um, they they would regard her as a dangerous uh, input. You know they don't want that kind of movement happening in China. Uh, so I I'm not sure if she comes uh, as an official United Nations delegate maybe, but privately on a boat. I, I'm, I don't train. know. I don't know. Or train. I, I'm not sure how that will play out. Before we open the floor to your questions, I would just do a short last round with all of you. Um, where do you see China in 2030 and 2050? Short answers, please. Karin, you may start. Optimistically, I uh, hope that they will take the path that we are, um, or at least a similar path to what we are showing in the in the outlooks, and especially when it comes towards 2050. Uh, I hope that the development in China will also be equal to other developments in the rest of the world and will be very much renewables-based. Lars, what do you think? So I have quite, quite confidence that one way or another, China is going to be on, on, on some sort of road as the one we lay out. When you compare our stated policies, the, 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 the major trends in our stated policy scenario to the below two scenario, you see that the same things are actually happening. It's a matter of speed. And speed is, of course, important for climate. But that means that uh, we are still, the, the underlying drivers are still going to be there regardless. In this sort of, the 14th five-year plan is sort of building towards the 15th, so, so to answer your 2030 question, Renewables are going to be subsidy-free. And that is a huge development in the energy system. And that means that while we might not realize it, or China might not realize it quickly enough to get on the train quickly enough to not have a disruption, there is going to be an energy transition uh, by 2030. And I believe that having the very, very long-term vision that, that Chinese policymakers actually have, setting clear visions for 2050, is, is going, to, going to put them in a good place uh, by 2050. But hopefully, the road doesn't have to be as bumpy as I fear it will be. Hopefully, it can be more smooth like, uh, like the road that we lay out in the Renewable Energy Outlook. Nice. what is your prognosis? I hope, I, I am afraid that the next 10 years will be very bumpy uh, and it will be painful probably, but pain is usually the, uh, the thing that triggers, uh, you know, actual revolutions, right? So I'm, I'm actually more optimistic for 2050. 
I'm hoping we have an arms race, uh, a green arms race uh, for global climate leadership uh, because I don't see anyone else doing it. And China has certainly identified affordable, reproducible, exportable climate solutions as one thing that can give them enough soft power, enough you know, leverage in the international system uh, to make them a global leader uh, in the mid to long term future. Um, and you know, I, I hope that will be the case. I would like to thank my panelists. First of all, Caroline Schenuit and your whole team for bringing this topic to Merricks and preparing this event together with us. Thank you very much for your input. Thank you and for last, hosting us. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Lars Breinbeck from Denmark and China, back and forth. Um, and Nis Greenberg, my colleague here from Merricks. This was the Merrick Lunch Talk, and I hope to see you soon and wish you a Merry Christmas. Probably we won't see each other before. Thank you. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org. <laughs>